Alrighty, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, good morning. It is mighty good to see everyone here on this beautiful Sunday, this beautiful Lord's Day. Uh, first Sunday of fall this year, I believe. Uh, weather is getting a little bit nicer. I don't know about you guys. I prefer it a little colder than it's been. It's been a weird summer. But uh, looking forward to the rest of the year. Looking forward to this class and getting to dive into some of these uh, topics and hear your thoughts as we go along. Uh, this is session five, communion with God is in the spirit. We're going to talk a little bit about what that means and the nature of that. Um, before we do, we're going to begin with the opening word of prayer. I've asked uh, Marty to open this up, so we'll go ahead and do that. But today we're going to be talking about another aspect of the New Testament and another way that God has manifested himself as a way to connect and commune with his people. So communion with God is in the spirit is the uh, session title today. When I say the word communion, uh, what kind of things come to your mind? Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper, okay, that's a pretty big one. That was a institution of Christ himself. Uh, he laid the example that we are to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper, and we're going to talk about that. What other things can be considered communion for a Christian? Communicate with him. Communication, okay. You have that word, communion, communicate. That's very important. Uh, we're going to talk about what types of communication there are with Christ uh, and God. Uh, any, anything else? In harmony. Harmony, okay. A shared experience. A shared experience, okay. So that could be uh, on a kind of different levels, right? You could have shared experience between you and God, but communion with a people, right? When we come together, we have the same experience, yeah? Uh, like dwelling with someone. Dwelling, okay. That's another word. Um, different implications, different ways that we can be dwell, we can dwell with people or be dwelt within. Um, yeah, all good thoughts and all good things that we're going to touch on, not only in this session, but as we go about. Um, so I want to talk about this transition into the Old Testament to the New Testament. We talked about how God visits different people periodically. He talked to Abraham and instituted um, this return to monotheism. The idea of a Jewish people, a God's chosen people, and Abraham was the father of that. But about 400 years after the Old Testament, someone else comes on the scene, a man by the name of Jesus from the town of Nazareth, and he starts claiming some things. And what he's claiming essentially is that he is the promise, the fulfillment of all the covenants that were made in the Old Testament that the Jewish people would be familiar with. And there's something very important to understand is that the first followers of Jesus were first century Jews. They were those that believed Wholeheartedly and understood um, the scripture, the Torah, the laws of Moses, and um, also the writings of the prophets. And when Jesus comes and says these things and makes his claims of deity, there are going to be a good number of people who believe him and understand him and want to follow him. But there are also going to be a good number of people that push back against that and say, this cannot be. And we need to be able to look at that and understand the context of that because it should be absolutely credited to the people that do believe Jesus and are able to see his claims as uh, the legitimate claims that they are. 
but also there is a degree of understandability that we need to lend to those who were having trouble seeing Jesus for what he was, because it was very difficult. Um, we'll talk about that in just a bit. So you have Abraham, who's told that the Jewish community is going to be a light to the world. There's a trifecta of verses in Isaiah that talk about uh, Israel being a light to all nations. Jesus later says, I am the light of the world. Basically saying, I am Israel. He later will tell his apostles, you are the light of the world. Uh, Moses was the institutor of law and sacrifice. Jesus comes along and says, I am the Lamb of God. Or it was in these two instances I have up here, John the Baptist who first called him the Lamb of God. Behold, here is the Lamb. Here comes the Lamb of God. And to the Jewish people, this would have uh, pricked up their ears, they would have recognized the sacrificial language. For a Jew, what do you do with a lamb? You sacrifice it. That's what they're for. Then you have David, who was God's chosen king, started this uh, monarchy over Israel, uh, sort of a surrogate for God's will. Then you have Jesus who says, I am the ultimate king, I am the Christ and the Messiah. Christ and Messiah, those are the same words. Uh, the Greek word for Christ is the uh, translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, uh, meaning Savior. So I put this up here to show that in the Old Testament, God talks to different people and uses them to uh, institute his will and what he would have his chosen people do. <clears throat> but he's going to transition into having Jesus be all of these things that came before, the fulfillment. So all of these things that were promised are fulfilled in the personhood of one, Jesus Christ, who is part of the Godhead, who is uh, God himself. And the point I want to make here is that the Old Testament, God slowly gives people ways to understand him, but now he's going to give himself a way to understand us. And when we have Jesus and we look at his example and the way that he would have us commune with God, it really, really opens up uh, the intent of what we're talking about, communion, how he would have us do that. Uh, any thoughts or questions thus far? All right, we're going to go ahead and get into some of the text today. This is an account of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, very well-known accounts, a very beautiful story. Uh, this is John 4, verses 21 is where we're starting. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. So, see, Wednesday night's class, in this class, are linked kind of by this verse here is how I'm doing that. God is spirit, so now we're going to be talking about what it means that his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. 
and you have this dialogue going on between Jesus and a Samaritan woman, and this is significant on a cultural level for what reason? What is Jesus, nationally speaking? He's a Jew, and he's talking with a Samaritan woman, and not only do you have the, um, the cultural thing of a man talking to a woman, but you have a Jew talking to a Samaritan, which is virtually unheard of. But Jesus starts this dialogue, and he does it for a reason, to get her to realize a couple of things. He has this dialogue about her personal life and all of that, and that's a wonderful story. And he makes some points there about how she's looking for uh, something to fulfill her, but what Jesus has and what he's bringing and instituting, the communion that he's bringing, is the only thing that's going to truly fulfill her. But what we're looking at here is he says, yet yeah, the time is coming, and that has now come. He says, it has now come because I'm, I've come. I'm here right now. The true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and the truth. And these are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. And before this, they have this conversation about, okay, well, where is the place to worship, right? Because they're at the well of Jacob, and they're in the area of the Old Testament where these covenants and these visitations have happened. And the Samaritans count these places as holy places, but the Jews are have the temple, right? The temple that was established in the time of David and Solomon. That's the place they worship. They're all thinking about the old law the things of the old law, and they're getting stuck on that, Jesus says, there is a new law, I am replacing something, right? I am bringing um, this inner spiritual worship, this uh, practice, and I'm replacing this geographic locality, okay? It's not about places we're going to go, things we're going to do in that way. It's about the way we live our lives. And that's what he's saying to uh, this woman here. Uh, any thoughts on this verse or these things? Okay, we're going to continue on. Uh, this is, once again, a point that he makes when he says in Matthew 15, 8 through 9, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So here we see that there is not only a right way to worship, but there is a wrong way to worship. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with the physical acts of worship. You can be worshiping God and doing the things that um, outwardly reflect worship. But if your heart isn't in it, or you have things in your heart that aren't the things of God, if he isn't centered in your heart, then it's vain. It is empty. So what are some of the aspects of worship? Um, that we, uh, as Christians, partake in when we come together to meet on the first day of the week? Prayer. Prayer, okay. That's a big one. Singing, okay. Making melody with our hearts is what we sometimes refer to it as. Anything else? Well, we do communion together when we come together. Yep, communion. So these are all things that we do in the body, physically, but these are reflections of a greater spiritual reality. These are um, a way that we show a spiritual relationship with God, and it's a way of reflecting it and magnifying it to others. And that is the essence of worship. And this verse especially here shows that it has to come from within. 
spirit and in truth has to do with the intentions of our hearts and what we're focused on in our hearts and minds when we do these things that reflect the spiritual reality. Uh, Paul writes in Romans, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true, and to the mind of God, or this idea that, that you're going to experience this revelation. But there's a way to orient yourself, and there's a way to live as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And when we choose to live in the spirit rather than the flesh, and we are not conformed but rather transformed by the renewing of our minds, then we are going to understand God better. And we are going to understand what he would want from us in each scenario. Whatever comes our way, whatever um, troubles or trials we have to deal with, when we understand uh, what God would have us to do and the way he would have us conduct our lives, then it becomes very clear, sometimes not always at once, sometimes there are times when it just doesn't seem like we know what the right thing to do is. But the more we understand um, what God would have us do, the easier it becomes to be able to maneuver through those tougher times uh, in life. Uh, thoughts or comments? So exalting God through worship, we've kind of talked about the uh, point of worship. What we want to do is magnify God, to make him bigger, to show God to others and to each other. We talked in the last class about how Judaism was this radical view of God because unlike the other views, this was a God who had created and started a special relationship with his creation where he would work for them in return for their faith and loyalty and their service. So we, having that same relationship, when we give God our faith, our loyalty, our service, as we're doing right now and as we do throughout our lives, we receive things, benefits, and he makes our lives better. He enriches us. He gives us these blessings. And we, of course, want to turn that back to God and exalt him for doing so. And that's sort of what we're going to talk about now is how does worship help us exalt God? How does it continue this process of this communion, God working for us, us working for God, the cyclical nature here? This was Paul's main focus and goal in life and also in death. We're going to look at some of the verses where he says as much, but we know that Paul was a man who lived a life very contrary to the one that he would live in Christ. He lived a life in the flesh, doing what seemed right to him at the time, but when he was visited by Christ, when he saw Christ himself, and Christ told him he's going to turn away from that old life and start working a spiritual life, a spiritual work, that's when he realized that there's so much more to life, and he had his entire worldview oriented. In Philippians 1, 20-21, he writes, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted, some of your translations may read, magnified in my body, 
whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, something important to notice here is that um, Paul says that he has sufficient courage uh, or he wants to have sufficient courage so that Christ will always be exalted. So he goes on to say, in my body, whether by life or by death. So he says a key word, body, which is what we have, right? We're talking about the spirit and the flesh. But there's this idea that you can still worship in the spirit, in the body, whether by life or by death. So there's two aspects to that we're going to look at. Um, reading this verse, just face level value, can kind of be confusing. So I kind of want to look at it a little bit deeper. I have a couple questions for Paul just reading this off the top of my head. How is it that I can exalt Christ while still in the flesh, while still having these tendencies and these leanings to do what my flesh desires rather than what Christ would desire or have me do? And what is the essence of this kind of worship? What does it mean to exalt Christ in this way? Um, verses 20 and 21, if you look at the juxtaposition of these words here, he says, whether by life or by death, right? I think we think of those things as two separate things, right? <coughs> life is the beginning of something. Death is the end of that something. But Paul turns that on his head. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Is what he's saying is I have decided for myself and I've figured out that dying is just a continuation of a life that I've already began. There are spiritual realities that we've talked about. Jarrell in the first session talked about how it mentions that we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Is that when we are baptized into the kingdom, we have a place in heaven. And Paul has come to realize that death is simply a continuation or a more full realization of that reality is that it is only going to give him more of the thing that which he desires. If we as Christians say what we want to do most is be with Christ and be more like Christ and have communion with him, yet we fear death, that makes us hypocrites, right? Because death is the thing that's going to do that ultimately. So Paul says, I can live a life in the flesh but by the Spirit by realizing that dying is going to be the best thing that can happen to me. As Christians, that's, that's the same. Dying is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to us. And if we keep that in mind, that goal that Paul strove towards, we too can um, you know, achieve this sense of peace that surpasses all understanding. Uh, any thoughts? Yes, Gerald. Yeah, I think this is, it's great that you made this connection between the communion that we have with God and the sense of a continuation of life after death. Because I think so many people, I mean, if you just watch the popular media or listen to the way people talk just in, in their ordinary communication, they'll talk about this sense that their, their life is gonna continue after death, but they talk about it in absence of any connection or communion with God. Um, 
And what I think the reason Paul had this sense that his life was going to continue after his death and that it was preferable to die was because of his communion with God. So there is a, a, a sense in which our, our continuation in a better life after this one is over is the result of a communion with God without which how could you have such a confidence that you're going to that there is going to be any life for you after death and that, and if there was that it's going to be any better than the one that you're living now yeah absolutely that's a great point uh, any other thoughts uh, another verse that I think of uh, when talking about Paul is Galatians I don't have it on the screen but Galatians 2.20 uh, verse we know I have been crucified with Christ so it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so once again this idea of dying not only a physical death like we were just talking about but there's a death that takes place here in the body and technically, it's the death of the body. And that's, of course, the death of the old self uh, in baptism, is that when we come out of the water in baptism, we are new creatures, we have a new life, and that is the life that we are supposed to continue in. And it is not Christ, or sorry, it is not us who are living that life, but Christ living it through us. And a lot of times I think about um, you know, the importance that we place on baptism, and we place that importance rightly because it's a very important thing to do as a Christian. It's what brings us into the body of Christ. But I think there's a tendency that we think about the event of our baptism, the day itself, it happening, and sometimes we can lose sight of the fact that what we do is a representation of what it is that we're supposed to do every single day as Christians, is that we're supposed to die every day as Christians. Every day we are supposed to choose to live by the Spirit and live according to God's will and actively deny the things that we want to do in the flesh. That has to be a continual choice that we make, not just the choice we made one time when we put on Christ in baptism, but every single day. And it can get so hard sometimes. I understand more than anyone. I, I have my struggles and my challenges and my temptations. How easy it is to get caught up in the minutia of life and not think about the fact that this is an ongoing process, dying to self. Um, but it's something to think about. And Paul was very good at articulating what it means and what it looks like. And what it looks like, especially in this verse in Galatians, is that it's not about me at all. I'm getting out of the way and letting Christ be seen through me. And if other people are starting to see me and what I want more than what Christ wants in my life, then that's not me doing this. Uh, any thoughts? Okay. Uh, another verse. Uh, we're going to move into another aspect of communion, which is probably the one that we all think about is the Lord's Supper. Uh, we talked a little bit about how communion with Christ is uh, possible through our life in the way we live as Christians, 
Now we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, institution that he uh, set forth while he was here, and it is commonly referred to as the Lord's Supper. And this is the account in Mark 22-25. He says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and we had, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So we know that Jesus is saying these things uh, and putting this forward the night before he is to go to his death on the cross. And by doing so, he is giving an example of what we are to do um, in order to exalt and magnify him. One of the things that we can show to other people is this idea of communion. People uh, would ask you, you know, why do you do that? Why is it so important that you eat some bread or drink uh, some fruit of the vine every single week? Well, it's not that we're just doing that. Those are the physical things we do that are representing a spiritual communion. Um, and then Jesus even says that there is a more full realization of what you're doing here, right? He says, I'm going to die, and I'm not drinking again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And we are also going to have a fuller realization of this feast, of this communion with God when we join him in doing that, uh, when we enter into heaven. And then, of course, you have Paul continuing this idea in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Right? Paul is saying, I'm the messenger. This isn't something I'm making up. This is from the Lord. That the Lord Jesus on the night, when he was betrayed, he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's really what we're doing there, right? We want to show the world and each other the significance of Jesus dying for us, the implications, what it means that he came to earth, that God decided to become like us to understand us better, and in doing so, gave us a person, a life to reflect on, learn from, and get to know him and have a relationship. It's through Jesus that we got to know better, and it's through Jesus that God got to know us better. And Jesus now serves as a mediator in that relationship. And to draw a parallel from the last class, do you remember we talked about the Garden of Eden being the first um, instance of God dwelling with man. But sin is the problem. Sin enters in and it tears God away from man. God and man cannot dwell together. And man is the one that has to suffer the consequences of sin. He is removed from the presence of God. But in the New Testament, <clears throat> as part of 
God's way of working us back to that relationship, to a new home where we can dwell. God says the problem is still sin. It hasn't gone away. We have these uh, rituals and these sacrifices that um, do not take away sin, but they are a sort of they're a form of penance, right? I'm going to figure out a way to take away the actual stain of sin, the actual effect of sin. And this time, I'm going to be the one that suffers as a result of the sin. First it was man, now it's Christ. It's God through Christ saying, I'm the one that's going to take on the burden, even though he was sinless, right? It's not his problem to deal with, it's ours. It came into the world through man, through the flesh. Christ is taking it on, and by doing this, he takes away the guilt, the shame, the effect, the stain of sin. The inability to dwell with God has been removed through Christ. And that is uh, sort of this idea of communion. Remember, the, we talked about the veil between the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies separating it. When Christ was crucified, that veil was torn from top to bottom, once again indicating that this isn't something a human could do. This was a divine intervention. This is representative of the fact that there really is no separation, physical or otherwise. We are now in an era where we have access to God. We can have communion with God without any of these rituals or sacrifices that came before it. Uh, thoughts or comments? Okay. So Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. <clears throat> and so we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become more mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is a passage in Ephesians, and it's talking about... Um, what Christ did that got us to this point that we have today. We are here worshiping uh, at church. Church is the people, but we have um, this building that we come together that we're blessed to have. And we have members who served in these capacities that were instituted uh, by Christ himself. So you kind of have this hierarchy. You have Christ, the head of the church, and he gives the apostles and the prophets, and those give way to evangelists and pastors and teachers that we still use today. Any of these positions of authority, or um, you see people leading in the church, those are all scriptural, and we can be happy to show uh, anyone where we get the command to have those uh, positions. So this idea, you have communion uh, in life, as we go about living, we have communion through the Lord's Supper, communion both vertical and horizontal, if you want to think about it that way, communion with uh, Christ, but also communion with each other, uh, like Jamie said, a shared experience, and then you have communion through uh, worship, more general, the idea that we are uh, doing this together, that we have positions that were instituted in the old, or sorry, the New Testament, 
um, that are for service. <coughs> that we have people that are been equipped for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. There, once again, there's that word. It's a physical word, but it reflects a spiritual reality. We are all in the flesh and we come together to make up the body of Christ. Yeah. This may just be kind of rephrasing what you're saying and what's been said, but it almost seems like when we are having our flesh, our bodies do these things that we were created for, mm -hmm. it's a way of lining up that spirit flesh so that they're not fighting anymore. When we come here and we're worshiping and our hearts are in it, but we are also doing the physical acts with our bodies or we are serving and our hearts are in it. That's a way of bringing all that into alignment instead of this always constantly fighting <coughs> each other because that's what we were created to do. I don't know if that makes sense to anyone else, but it, it almost just seems like instead of your flesh running over here, it's all just lined up the way that God created it to be when we are doing those things. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, is that part of the reason I think, I think a good deal of the reason that we are supposed to take of um, the Lord's Supper come together to commune with one another every week is that the longer you go without it, without the edification of other <coughs> saints, the harder it becomes. Because salvation is not, uh, you know, salvation, the life of a Christian, is not something that you're necessarily supposed to go at it alone. Personal salvation is your own responsibility. But getting each other across the finish line, so to speak, running the good race, fighting the good fight, is something that we are supposed to be doing together as members of the body of Christ. So when you are aligned, like Jamie said, when you are aligned with God's will, and you're doing what you're supposed to do, and that includes coming to services and being a part of uh, this communion, yeah, it becomes easier to uh, put away the flesh and die to Christ every day. Isaac, did you have something? I think there's also kind of a, a mirror, if you will, between our unity person to person and the unity of, say, the flesh and the spirit. Mm -hmm. If I, you know, we could, we could discuss, there's probably something in here that everyone disagrees on. One person, it may be different issues, but I can almost guarantee there is something I disagree with every person in here. I can find something like that. But we're, I think what this passage is talking about is in our pursuit of unity amongst ourselves, we are also trying to unify. I'm, I'm trying not only to unify myself to you, but I'm trying to unify my flesh with my spirit. Mm -hmm. So the longer I go, hopefully the more aligned I am with my brethren and the more my will should align with Christ until eventually it does become <clears throat> indistinguishable is, is the goal. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful point. I think you pointed out <clears throat> like unity and faith, the idea that, well, how does that work? If you have all these people with different life experiences, different backgrounds, all reading the Bible, we're all going to have a little bit different interpretations. <clears throat> Not on everything. I think uh, the scripture is very clear on certain issues, but there are other ones that we know just from personal experience. We have different interpretations, different takes. How are we supposed to be unified 
if you have a congregation of, you know, 500, 600 people, um, all reading the same Bible but seeing different things in different places, well, this verse also addresses that, is that the church that Christ set up is we have evangelists and pastors and teachers. We have uh, the word pastor. Uh, we have elders. Some uh, congregations refer to them as shepherds that kind of take this idea of unity and um, really demonstrate it for us. Is there leaders and the fact that you have people come together, you have, um, as this congregation is something to consider as we're looking for more elders, is people who are able to have a common goal is that they want to be unified in the spirit and they're going to do that by figuring out a way for the congregation to work together and be able to put aside some of the differences and find a constructive way for worship to happen, for communion with God to be at its most useful, um, at its most edifying. And we want to be looking for um, men who are uh, um, willing to do that or wanting to help this congregation uh, build each other up more. Um, and that's, that's an exciting pursuit, and I'm glad to be a part of that as we go along here. And, uh, yeah, like Isaac said, um, building each other up, edifying each other is, you know, the goal. Communion with each other is also in the spirit. Any other comments, questions? Okay. Another verse I wanted to look at as we wrap up here, um, talking about the importance of what we do here, the importance of commuting on a weekly basis. Uh, and let us consider how we may encourage each other uh, to one another, sorry, that we may encourage one another to love and do good deeds, not forsaking our meeting together, once again, emphasizing the importance of what we're doing here, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Once again, this idea that we are on a journey together, that this is something that we're supposed to be doing in tandem as one body. Uh, it's going to be important there. So those are some aspects of communion. Those are some ways that we can exalt and magnify Christ in our life. Uh, some examples of what that looks like. And um, yeah, I appreciate your attention today. Uh, I appreciate those of you who shared thoughts. Uh, if you have any other comments or thoughts, uh, especially afterwards, I would love to hear those as well. So uh, once again, thank you. And uh, you've really made these uh, two first sessions for me quite enjoyable. I've enjoyed going through this material with you. So thank you very much.